Hi, and welcome to Exchange Traded Fridays, our weekly podcast covering the latest trends and developments in the exchange traded fund industry. My name is Daria Solovieva, and I'm the managing editor of ETF.com. Today, we have a special guest for you, um, and one of the top stories in the ETF world and broader market news has been the approval of Spot Bitcoin ETF in the U.S., so please welcome Ophelia Snyder, president and co-founder of 21Co, the parent company of 21Shares. Welcome to the podcast, Ophelia. Thank you so much for having me. So we'll jump right into it since uh, you've been at the forefront of the story. Of course, with the application, there are currently eight applications. According to Bloomberg Analyst Count, your application was first in line um, and it has been in the work for years, back and forth. Um, what is different about this this time? Quite a few things, actually. I think on one hand, obviously, every year that goes by, every, every time we, we go through this process with the SEC, we do get a bit closer and the underlying market actually matures, right? The crypto market is materially different today than it was three years ago, two years ago, even one year ago. So there are a lot of fundamentals in the market that are changing. Um, one of the key pieces, obviously, that, that's gotten a lot of coverage and a lot of people have asked questions about that's different this time around is the exchanges that will list the ETFs have entered into surveillance sharing agreements with Coinbase, who have a majority of the flows in the underlying spot market uh, within the United States. Uh, I think the last I looked at this data, it's about mid 50s percent of spot crypto trading in the US actually runs through that. Um, and this is material because it obviously moves crypto markets into a more standard style of surveillance agreement. And that's something that the SEC had expressed an interest in, in having in place prior to an ETF approval. So from the outside, it also looked like BlackRock with its application came out of nowhere. And you, of course, you were at the forefront of this. Is that a correct impression or was there more work in the background in terms of the institutional players coming in and also filing applications at this time? I've been asked this question a lot, you know, if I was blindsided by a manager like that coming into the space. The answer is honestly no. It makes a lot of sense. I don't think those types of filings, I don't think those types of moves, especially by companies of this size, are, are done overnight. There's obviously a lot of work that's been put into it. There was a lot of work put in to entering the SSAs. There was a lot of work put into positioning some of this. I'm not surprised. I think institutional adoption in the space has been increasing now for years. We see it in our conversations with clients in Europe. We see it in our conversations with regulators globally. There has been a shift towards institutional adoption. So it's not terribly surprising that asset managers of that size are entering the space. It's also, I mean, if, if you read Larry Fink's letter uh, in terms of key objectives for the year, mm -hmm. For this year, it actually explicitly mentions things like digital assets and tokenization. So it's not terribly surprising that this is something they would be interested in. And for a general audience, I just kind of want to talk about the wrapper of ETFs for Spot Bitcoin as a, as a principle, right? Is it, design, you know, for the value of it, the advantage of it, and if it's a, you know, pure play Bitcoin bet, why not, you know, buy Bitcoin directly for a, a retail investor, for an average user, let's say? So I think the, the question you're getting at here is really, why would you buy an ETF versus buying spot on a spot market? Correct. Yeah. 
There's a lot of reasons why, to be honest. And, and it differs depending on, on what kind of investor you are. For retail especially, crypto infrastructure is, is quite different than traditional financial infrastructure. You actually, you need to open new accounts, you need to set up new things, it, you know, you need to do your tax reporting separately. That may or may not be a piece of work that people are interested in doing for a single investment. Um, and I, I know that was certainly mm-hmm. the case with, you know, people like my mom who really wanted their investments to fit as part of their, you know, standard process with their existing wealth managers, with their existing access points. Also, there's something to be said for custody and platform risk and insurance. The type of custodial setups that are available to institutional investors and the types of custodial setups available to retailers just not the same. So you you get access to a much higher quality and much higher security custody product. You get access to better insurance for any issues with that underlying custody. You get access to um, a lot of that institutional quality execution that's really just not typically available in the retail segment. For larger investors, for institutions, these types of products fit more cleanly within fund mandates. You essentially are outsourcing the need to operate that infrastructure. So you don't expect people who are trading grain futures to have a grain silo. And there's that classic uh, joke about the you know hedge fund manager who accidentally has an oil tanker delivered to his office. There's no expectation that you would manage those types of things. And crypto infrastructure is quite different. So it gives you the ability to essentially allow people who are experts at doing this to manage a lot of those idiosyncratic crypto specific um, infrastructure questions, whether that's in the case of Bitcoin, it's primarily related to trading custody. Uh, once you get into you know other assets, things like staking infrastructures, things like airdrops and forks and sort of managing all of that, as well as sort of lastly, there, there are some tax benefits from these types of wrappers. So everything that you're describing, it sounds like, uh, you know, it will help in getting kind of larger segments of the population involved in terms of, you know, women are not typically thought of as day traders. Do you think that the structure and the packaging of a spot Bitcoin day off will allow more segments of the population to be comfortable with that crypto in general? Yes. I, look, I think the ETFs do a really wonderful job of bridging traditional finance and crypto and sort of making that access point and, and increasing accessibility. And, and that was the whole point of, quite frankly, ETFs to begin with. And I think you will likely see a similar trend to the type of increased access you see when in other segments once ETFs were introduced. And then in terms of the competition, and there are several applications being out there, um, Grayscale CEO was also speaking about the competition and kind of the changing tide, and he called it a land grab. The question for you is just kind of how much does it matter to be first in terms of getting this approval? Does it does it matter at all? Yes, it does tremendously. Um, if you look at, for example, the futures products, the difference between the first to market and the second to market, it was a couple of days in terms of difference. And I think ProShares has about a billion dollars in assets. And I believe the second place has less than a hundred million. And then in terms of your experience in the European space, you, you know, if you have an opportunity, like the biggest takeaway and learning from spot Bitcoin products there, what do you hope that more of kind of US market understands or accepts about crypto? I think that... Education in this space is absurdly important. Um, It's one of the reasons why we as an organization committed a very long time ago uh, to giving research away for free and sort of educational content away for free. It it is a very different market. And so that educational piece and sort of building up that institutional knowledge at a market level 
is actually quite important. I think there's often an approach of, you know, crypto is is wildly different than everything we've ever looked at before. And in some respects it is, and in some respects it isn't. And so there's really an ability to build up that knowledge base and sort of work with work, work with advisors, work with uh, work with funds, work with other institutions to help them get comfortable and, and get into a position where they feel confident in the advice that they're giving their clients. It's a huge part of what we as a company have spent years working on. And that educational process, quite frankly, also applies to regulators. Um, I think mm-hmm. people underestimate how much time and effort has gone into really helping regulators understand the sector and how much work regulators have put in to try to understand it, not just in the United States, but on a global basis. It is new, it is different, and it, it does require that sort of level of work um, at an educational level. That makes a lot of sense. And then Let's sort of imagine the future where Bitcoin is already a reality, however long it takes, and the SEC is on board, it's done. As an issuer, do you have a roadmap in terms of what's next, in terms of are we going to see other crypto ETFs like Ether follow suit or come available through other major brokers? So, I mean, if you look at our product suite in Europe, we've already done this, right? We run 37 different products um, covering dozens of crypto assets ranging from you know, uh, Ethereum with staking features to indexes to short products. Um, I think long term, you would hope that the U.S. market reaches that level of sophistication as well. Do you have any sense of how long that would take? Obviously, the, the process, the ETF process, still happening, it could take months or perhaps even years. Do you roadmap after that? What does that look like to you in terms of time? It's a very difficult question to answer. I think there's been a lot of focus on. Bitcoin, I think a lot of the issues that are raised in the context of Bitcoin, if you resolve them to the SEC's satisfaction, um, you likely resolve them for for more than one asset. But given the Mm -hmm. changing stance from from the SEC and from the U.S. government around how to categorize these assets until we've answered that question, it's actually very difficult to know. And, And that's a evolving and moving target, not just within sort of the at the agency level with, with the SEC and the CFTC, but also in terms of Congress. That makes sense. And you mentioned your educational uh, materials as well, and you published the crypto market report, the state of crypto for the year. Has your outlook changed at all? Um, and what are you kind of expecting to see in the second half of the year? I don't think our outlook has changed much. We talk a lot as a company um, about bear markets. And, and and it's interesting because most of the major developments in crypto actually happen during bear markets. Price is mm-hmm. a highly lagging indicator of actual progress and actual adoption in the space. And that sort of makes sense. In order to actually have those material leg ups in terms of in terms of valuation, in terms of market activity, you, you really do need those use cases to evolve. And I think what we've seen in the past few months and what we're continuing to see is a lot of the work that people have put in in the last year, year and a half, um, since crypto has been a bit more bearish, are starting to see the light of day. You're talking about advancements across the board from you know increased usage of, of more complex functions in, in Bitcoin with things like ordinals in terms of DeFi activity, in terms of new protocols coming out, in terms of sort of the evolution of sort of both the layer one and the layer two market. So I, I think it remains to be seen over the next six months as these all of this work comes to light, it will be extremely interesting. It's where we'll be able to see what the next phase of the crypto market really does look like and, and what's going to be driving adoption. 
And in terms of the evolution of the market, as you said, in terms of are you with the surveillance sharing agreements, is there is that the direction where you see movement that we're going to see more of these types of um, agreements and provisions, whether in the, this point Bitcoin ETF applications um, and also kind of more regulatory uh, framework, um, like the reintroduction of the um, crypto bill on the Hill as well. So. I think surveillance sharing agreements are a piece of extremely wonky, as in like quite technical, mm -hmm. um, piece of backend infrastructure for the exchanges. Like these are not interesting. They're very much a specific agreement tailored to a specific use case, which has to do with like market mm -hmm. surveillance and markets manipulation. There's not a lot in those arrangements that actually changes the market structure or is a material difference in how most people will think about crypto adoption. It is a very useful and a very important step forward in terms of regulatory compliance and harmonization of market standards, but that doesn't necessarily impact crypto adoption or sort of the evolution of crypto markets in that way. It's more of a deeper integration of crypto markets with traditional financial markets, mm -hmm. but it's not necessarily as big of a shift, I think, as people attribute to it. There, there isn't a lot of commercial difference in what these SSAs do. It's really about surveillance under very specific circumstances. So. I don't know that those are going to be like a major catalyst for changes in the crypto market. I, I think the places where you will see more of those types of major catalysts is if we do get that regulatory clarity. Um, I think you're going to see a lot of changes around that in the coming months and years, um, whether it's through, you know, the, the, the Coinbase lawsuit, the Grayscale lawsuit, some of the enforcement actions from the SEC. Um, some of what's happening in Congress. I mean, eventually these pieces have to come together to provide that clarity and provide a real picture combining both sort of the executive branch, Congress, as well as the judiciary in a much more consolidated view. I think that will help tremendously, but I think that will take longer than people realize, like on the order of years. Yeah. And these are all kind of issues specific to the U.S. market, like as you said, that are not necessarily issues in, in Europe as, as obstacles. Correct. And speaking of Grayscale, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust GBTC discount came to its lowest level in a year in terms of signs for the market, for the crypto outlook. What kind of do you take away from, from their experience and the lawsuit? I mean, I think those two things are unrelated. The, the premium discount on Grayscale is typically a sentiment indicator on the likelihood of an ETF approval. And since, you know, these changes to the applications and the SSAs and some of the more recent interest in that, I think that's what you're seeing is that market sentiment is pushing towards or is hopeful of an approval. You know, if you look at when that discount started closing, it's much more tightly linked to that approval process versus, you know, any new statements in the Grayscale lawsuit. Mm -hmm. I think they're related, but they're not entirely linear. Makes sense. Um, is there anything else or wanted to add? Thank you for having me. This is really fun. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode. To listen to this and other episodes of Exchange Traded Fridays, you can go to etf.com or find us on any major podcast platforms.